Bitcoin podcast where I'm joined by Matt of Atomic Finance. We talk about the transition from them going from ETH and Bitcoin to just Bitcoin only, the options contracts uh, that Atomic Finance offers, and much, much more. So tune in for another action-packed episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, hit that subscribe button. You know, Give me a five-star review. Help grow the show. Spread the word of the State of Bitcoin podcast. And shout out to my sponsor, Pleb Lab. Down in Austin, Texas, they have a lot of great things going on. So you can go ahead and tune in to any of their courses, Nostra Devs course. You can buy all that stuff with Bitcoin on Oshi app um, and get some sats back too. So overall, just a great deal, great stuff going on down there in Austin. So if you haven't been down, go ahead and check it out down. I think they're uh, in, in the heart of 6th Street right now, but potentially maybe moving somewhere else, but still uh, in Austin, Texas. So be sure to check them out. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly the opinion of Matt and myself. Now let's get into the episode. Whoosh. Bing bong. We're back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast where I got Matt of Atomic Finance. They've recently made a big move of switching from, you know, using a little bit of ETH and Bitcoin to just Bitcoin only. So let's, Matt, let's dive right in, man. So why the change? And uh, congratulations on it, dude. You finally, uh, you get, you, got a, you guys got a little sense to you now, huh? <laughs> yeah, we went down the ra- wrong uh, rabbit hole there for a bit, Brandon, but uh, I think we got on the right track. I think there's lots of folks that, uh, you know, they go go through their shitcoin days and then they come out the other side. So it's it's no different with us. Um, yeah, we well, we actually made the change a, a couple of years ago. I think it was like 2020 or so. Um, you know, we were just sitting there. I remember, you know, the, the week that that happened, sitting there with my co-founder. I had been kind of pushing him towards, hey, we should, you know, focus on Bitcoin only. And finally, he actually went and read the Bitcoin standard. And that's what, you know, put us over the edge to say, hey, you know what, uh, you know, what's the asset that's going to be around for the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years? Well, we know Bitcoin is, but is Ethereum? I don't know. Um, and so that was really what 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 pushed us over the edge um, to want to build that, you know, that infrastructure that's going to be around for the long term. Yeah. And I mean, it definitely seems to be to be the case, right? I mean, I, obviously, I'm a Bitcoin maxi, so I'm a little bit biased as well. But, um, you know, I guess. How kind of uh, uh, difficult was it a change from like kind of going to a company where, you know, you, you know, maybe had uh, yeah, a little bit of the shit coinery going on with the, the, the ETH and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, kind of going over to the Bitcoin only side of things. Was that like more of, I guess, a difficult transition from like, I guess, like more of a marketing perspective? Like talk a little bit about that and like just kind of going through that phase, you know, in a startup where you're not only transitioning from like corporate world to like, you know, hey, I don't know, like about this funding round, all this kind of stuff, all the comp- complexities behind a, a startup to not only doing that, but doing a pivot in the business as well. Yeah, I think as a startup, we were very fortunate to have, you know, raised a round. Um, and so we uh, a seed round kind of about six months before we made this transi- transition. And so um, what that looked like is that's actually going and we actually launched or launched a product directly on on it was it was kind of a cross chain uh, product so so we'd actually been involved in kind of cross chain things for a while. I was working previous to you know atomic finance on atomic swaps between uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And what was cool about that is some of the folks on the team were actually Bitcoin maximalists, and so they were the ones that really taught me the values of 
hey, the, the Bitcoin supply cap or the fact that Satoshi really gave us this gift in, you know, dis you know in disappearing and kind of being around in the early stage and then disappearing. And so um, and so that's really kind of where I learned the values of Bitcoin. But I realized at the time that there weren't really any kind of financial tools that were available for Bitcoiners, um, at least in a non-custodial manner. At the time, there were, you know, you could get like a Bitcoin backed loan, for example, using some type of centralized entity, um, one of those being BlockFi, of course. Um, but there weren't really any tools that allowed for you to do this kind of in a more DeFi manner or a more non-custodial manner. And so um, the first product that we did was Atomic Loans, where you could take you could lock your Bitcoin as collateral and you could actually get a loan in a stable coin on Ethereum. Um, and what we realized was um, essentially, you know, most what we realized after launching that product was that most, you know, Bitcoiners were just OK using CFI and most Ethereum folks were, you know, OK, just using wrapped Bitcoin. Um, and what was and at the same time that all this was happening, DeFi summer was coming to fruition where all the shit coins were coming out. We didn't feel comfortable being a part of that. And so what we said is like, hey, you know what? There's this really interesting primitive that's coming to light called uh, discrete log contracts or DLCs that essentially allow for you to do contracts directly on the Bitcoin chain. We should investigate that and figure out, you know, what what we can actually do with that. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it was a, it was a pivot, right? It was a pivot in a startup to say, hey, instead of focusing on Ethereum, Bitcoin cross chain. You know, we're just going to focus on Bitcoin because that's what we think is going to be around long term. Yeah, and that's awesome stuff. So, I mean, you kind of mentioned it a little bit already, but let's back up. Let's talk about atomic finance. Like, what do you guys do? And uh, yeah, do you, what, what are you guys kind of, uh, I guess, like aiming for for this last uh, last quarter of the year here? Yeah, so we're atomic finance is a, it's a really simple mobile app that allows for folks to get access um, to returns or yield on their on their Bitcoin using automated trading strategies. So we specifically use options for that. So our, the one strategy we have out right now is cover calls. Um, and so really it's about, for us, it's about building, um, you know, sound finance for sound money. Um, so if we remember, so to understand a little bit of, you know, why we're doing that, we have to go, uh, you know, back to last year. If we remember, um, there was lots of folks that were kind of offering financial tools for Bitcoiners or a way to earn yield on their Bitcoin, but they were all black boxes. Let's think back to BlockFi, to Celsius. Um, you know, you were giving your Bitcoin to someone and you didn't know how the yield was being made. And as we all know, if you don't know how the yield is being made, you are the yield. And if your Bitcoin is being lent out to someone and they lend it out to someone else, you know, what are the chances that you're going to get that Bitcoin back at the end of the day? You know, we always like to say the line, um, 8% APY, um, you'll never enjoy on Bitcoin, you'll never see again, right? <laughs> and so, um, and so for us, like, our whole goal here was like, how can we provide a way for folks to be able to earn a return or earn sats um, on their Bitcoin in a non-custodial manner where they can see exactly how, how that yield or return is being made? Um, and then in general, it build a platform that allows for people to get access to financial tools for Bitcoin that doesn't require them to just give complete custody of it, you know, to a centralized exchange where they're at risk of being rug pulled at the end of the day. 
Yeah, and that's the biggest thing, right? It's a, it's all about that rug pull. Like, I mean, exactly like you said, the AP eight percent APY is it even really worth it at this point? And you know, I think it's it's kind of interesting because it's almost like a continuation of like the fiat world because like everybody's gotten kind of comfortable with you now you have the banking system, right? You put your money in like a high yield savings account, you get a couple percent back, and people are like, oh, my money's safe in a bank, but that's really kind of I guess started to blow up in a sense. Um, so, you know, from, from that aspect, you know, obviously you guys started, uh, kind of in an interesting time, right? I mean, you talked about the pivot in 2020 when, uh, you know, you saw the uh, COVID kind of hit the fan and and everything like that. So, uh, talk about that. Like, have you seen more of a, I guess, a need and a desire for, for the products that atomic finance, uh, offers because of, you know, kind of what's going on in, uh, I guess, general clown world at this point. Well, it's interesting because I think um, I think there's been a paradigm shift really in the last year. So previous to that, I think there was two camps. There was the Ethereum camp that believed in DeFi on Ethereum. And there was, um, I think most Bitcoiners were kind of okay with, you know, you have the majority of your stack in cold storage. And if you're going to do anything else with it, you know, use a BlockFi or use a, um, you know, some type of centralized exchange. And I think after the rug pulls that have occurred in the last year, there's been a shift and people's mindset to say, hey, you know what, actually getting, you know, financial, if you're going to do something with your Bitcoin, you know, make sure that it's, it's in a way that's not a black box that you can at least verify to a certain extent exactly what's what's going on. And so um, and so we, you know, for, for us, I think and it, it's also a weird thing, too, because I think at the same time, um, no matter what you're doing, people are always skeptical, right? Um, they're skeptical. of, Oh, hey, what's this new thing that's being created? I just got rugged last year. And so now as a community, we really need to build up that trust again for, for people to be able to, you know, uh, get access to, to products like this. And so, um, yeah. And you know, it's, it's strange. I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, people that, that just got really affected with everything that went on, you know, uh, with all these rugs that happened last year, like we lost $20 billion. You know, we can't be having that every four years, right? Uh, that's the GDP of El Salvador for God's sake. Um, and, and if that's, you know, if that's going to continue to happen every four years, like what's, what's the point of what we're building? Um, you know, there's a, why is it that, you know, for, for Bitcoin, like we're okay with telling people, Hey, put your Bitcoin in cold storage. And then if you're doing payments, use lightning, that's non-custodial. But as soon as you want to do something finance related with your Bitcoin, it's go to a centralized exchange. And it, that just seems insane to me. Yeah, that I mean, it is insane to, to me as well. I mean, it's it's more of like, I guess, trusting the third parties, right? I mean, it's, it's like, hey, that that's what the resorting tactic is. So, um, you know, talk about like the, the non-custodial aspect of things, like how difficult was it to implement that? And yeah, I mean, I guess what's the overall response to that? And I, I guess, I don't know how much you could peel back the curtain, but like with these option contracts and everything like that, I, how does that even work? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess first off, like, how do you do, um, like, we've all heard about how do you do financial tools on Bitcoin, right? That's the underlying question. Um, and lots of people, like, what was the original solution? Um, you know, doing things like WBTC on Ethereum, wrapping your Bitcoin or going to a centralized exchange, right? Those were kind of the traditional ways that we did any type of financial tools for Bitcoin. But what's what's great is um, actually back in 2017, uh, Taj Dryja, uh, who's the same guy who wrote the paper for Lightning Network, he also wrote the paper on DLCs, discrete log contracts. What's a discrete log contract? 
It's a very simple Bitcoin Oracle contract that allows for any type of primitive to be created directly on the Bitcoin blockchain itself. This means bets. This means uh, futures contracts, options contracts. So let's break it down. Like imagine uh, you and me, Brandon, we, you know, we want to do a bet. You know, people are doing bets on Twitters all the time. Hey, you know, who's going to win the presidential election? Is it going to be Biden? Is it going to be Trump? Um, you know, say, say for the sake of the example, you know, I'll, I'll put some money up for Trump. You put up some money for Biden. Um, and maybe we just, in the past, we would have just said, hey, Brandon, you know, let's put, let's create this bet on Twitter. And then it comes around to the results day. And you're like, ah, you know, I wasn't really serious about that, bet, right? It's called counterparty risk, right? Your counterparty doesn't pay up when it's time to pay for the bet. But with a DLC, what you do is both parties actually, you know, they take their Bitcoin and they lock it into a contract on chain. Um, and then what they use is an Oracle. An Oracle goes and creates an attestation of what is the result of this, um, of this bet, essentially. And so on chain, this actually just looks like a two of two multisig. It's a super simple contract. We're not talking about smart contracts in Ethereum. You know, there's been a ton of hacks that have occurred because these smart contracts are so complex, right? Uh, $80 million lost in Curve, $50 million lost here. Um, it's like almost almost impossible for something like that to happen with the DLC because it's just so simple. Um, you know, what do they say? What do they say? Uh, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's what a DLC is. And then at the time of the attestation, when the Oracle creates the signature, it allows for both, uh, you know, whoever won the bet, um, you know, say you won the bet, Brandon, you'd be able to take that signature and actually unlock the funds from that two of two multi-sig. And then that can be expanded, of course, to futures contracts or options contracts, which is what we're focused on. Um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar listeners are, Brandon, with like with uh, with options or, or financial contracts. Maybe we should break that down. Absolutely. Um, so what is an options contract? An option contract, I like to think of it kind of like a Think, imagine you have a imagine you have a coupon and you say, hey, you know what? Today the Bitcoin price is $27,000. I think next week we're going to have a God candle and it's going to go up to $35,000. Um, and so what someone can do is they might go and uh, say, hey, I think Bitcoin's going to go way higher. I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to pay a premium or I'm going to buy a coupon to be able to buy Bitcoin at a lower price of $30,000. And someone else says, hey, you know what? Actually, I don't think Bitcoin's going to go that high. Um, I think Bitcoin's going to stay below 30000 And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell a call and I'm going to collect that premium from that other individual. And so as long as Bitcoin stays below 30000 you get that premium back. And so that's essentially what we've built into our app in Atomic Finance is it allows for folks to get access to a way to earn, earn a return using automated trading strategies, specifically used by selling calls at opportune moments. So, you know, if we see like a particular trend of the market, it will generate a signal and then it will go and it will sell a call and you earn the premium from that in essence. Um, and so that's how the, you know, the returns are generated. Yeah, I know. And it's essentially like, you know, one person's betting on one side and the other side. Right. But, um, you know, the one thing that I, I guess, I don't know, it, it seems like you kind of have to have bulls and bears for these short-term movements right so i guess what's the response been in that sense where it's like hey you know i'm kind of instead of uh you know the general bitcoin ethos is just you know simply just hodl it's you know more of like taking a bet on one way or the other um so you know i guess what has the response been when you kind of like presented this product um 
Because, you know, it, it is kind of more, I guess, on a trading aspect of things opposed to to more of a, you know, maybe just the, the buy and hold and keeping cold storage kind of aspect. Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of folks here covered call and they think, oh, you know, that means I'm bearish on Bitcoin. But ironically, um, you know, the times where, you know, our cover call strategy actually uh, earned the most returns was during a very high volatility environment, um, very near the bull run. And the reason for that is because, you, you know, when, when volatility spikes, the premiums on options go up dramatically, which allows you to take a very large return. And often what occurs is you'll have a very, like, you know, Bitcoin doesn't go up in a straight line. It goes up and then it comes right back down. And when it's coming down, you know, in between those spikes, um, you know, there's an opportunity to, you know, kind of take advantage um, of the of the correction on the way um, on the way up, essentially. Um, but really what this is, I think there's a fallacy for, for a lot of people like um, absolutely. If you, you know, uh, I think a lot of people when they're trading, like there's this, you know, trading in general gets a bad rap because how do people trade? They do it emotionally. Right. They go out there. Um, they, they, you know, they're looking for a God candle or they're looking for Bitcoin to dump and then it doesn't happen. And then they exit at a loss. And then right after, you know, <laughs> the trade goes the other direction. Um, and most people lose most of their money that way. Um, but the alternative to that is like, well, actually what you should be doing with trading is taking a, um, you know, a, 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 like specific methods to do that, right? You should be doing it in a methodical manner. Um, and if you do that, then you're taking emotion out of the equation. And what you're doing is you're taking, uh, you know, there's really an opportunity to take advantage of uh, monetizing Bitcoin's volatility on its way to hyper Bitcoinization. Um, so we all know that, you know, a, a lot of people DCA and a lot of people hodl, um, but that isn't necessarily the best, you know, strategy for, you know, long term accumulation. Um, even if you do something similar, like, you know, sell a, a small portion of your Bitcoin, you know, close to the top of the bull run or, uh, you know, and and buy more Bitcoin back, you know, uh, like, you know, in the bear market or the accumulation phase, you're going to do much better than someone that simply DCAs. Um, and so and so on top of that, you know, if you can take advantage of strategies that are making sure that you're not making these emotional decisions, then there's really an opportunity to, you know, accumulate more sets. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean it doesn't come with risk. Right. There's no free lunch in Bitcoin. Right. If someone's guaranteeing you a certain yield or a certain return, you know, there should be red flags going up because, you know, that just doesn't exist, you know, in this space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And it, it is it is kind of interesting. But uh, let, let's talk a little bit about yourself. Right. So, like, why coming up, coming up with this idea? Um, and uh, yeah, like, were you a trader before? Like, what's kind of your background? Yeah, great question. So I actually originally got into Bitcoin back in uh, 2014, um, 2013, 2014. My dad introduced me to Bitcoin originally. He's a bit of a gold bug. And so something like uh, Bitcoin, you know, an asset that was outside of you know government purview was something that was very, very interesting to him. Um, he's not technical at all. Um, and so I was actually managing it for him at the time. And then, to be honest, I forgot about Bitcoin for a couple of years until 2017. Um, and at that time, me and my co-founder, uh, we were at um, uh, a university up here in Canada called University of Waterloo. Um, and that actually happens to be somewhat the uh, birthplace of Ethereum. Vitalik originally went to Waterloo. And so while we were there, we got very much introduced to the um, Ethereum ecosystem. And that's how we went down that rabbit hole uh, before eventually, obviously, uh, you know, <laughs> coming out of that and deciding to focus on Bitcoin. 
But that's what's what originally really interested in us and the idea of how to be able to get access to uh, financial tools for anyone in the world, right? At the time, there was this DeFi, you know, momentum that was building. And so that's what originally us, got us interested in, hey, you know, like, why is it that financial tools are only available to certain people in certain jurisdictions? Everyone in the world should be able to get access to these financial tools. Why can't we make, you know, that the case? Just like Bitcoin is available to folks around the world. And so, um, and so that's what originally got us down that rabbit hole for myself. Like I'm not a, I'm not a trader. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a technical guy. Um, you know, I, I focus on the, you know, the security, the, um, yeah, the development of, um, of, of kind of the tech behind like DLCs, et cetera. Um, and, and we kind of lean on, uh, some of our advisors for, uh, the trading uh, side of things alongside my co-founder as well for, you know, developing trading strategies that are, that are effective and methodical. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it is, it is kind of interesting because like, yeah, I mean, it seems like you are a little bit more on the technical side mm -hmm. of things. Uh, but then now you're, you're kind of more on like the trading aspect of it. Well, I, obviously, you know, a little, it's a, it's a mix of both. Right. But um, you know, I guess what kind of appealed you to, to trading and building this platform in that sense um, opposed to, you know, I guess, was it just something that you saw as like a need in the market because there wasn't another platform like this? Or do you, did you see it as like, hey, like, you know, I, I'm trying to grow that Bitcoin stack because, you know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. So if I can get in on trading and I find an edge or whatever, like this is where I can kind of kind of go from here. Yeah, well, I think I've always been uh, kind of interested in the idea of being able to take advantages of, um, you know, opportunity, opportunities in the market or inefficiencies in the market and, and being able to grow, um, you know, my own Bitcoin stack. And at the same time, I think, uh, you know, as a founder, it's all about building a product that you're really interested in yourself. So being able to have access to an automated strategy uh, that takes advantage of those inefficiencies um, is something that was very compelling to myself and my co-founder um, and also, you know, other members of our team. And so that was really exciting to us. Um, like, really, I think there's an there's an opportunity to take advantage of, um, you know, monetizing Bitcoin's volatility as we as we move towards the future. And the other thing, too, that that really, um, I guess, encouraged me was, uh, you know, back in 2015, um, you know, a portion of like if, like my when my dad originally got into Bitcoin, like, you know, uh, we were affected by the, the Cripsy hack that occurred or I guess it was really a rug pull. And so. Um, you know, knowing that that occurred, like that's always been kind of in the back of the mind of my mind that like, hey, like, why isn't there a better way to be able to get access to these financial tools where I know that I'm not going to be rugged? Um, and so that's that's one of the things that really inspired us to build what we're building, because we realized that, hey, like, you know, people are building this in Ethereum, but it's just as easy for these rugs to occur. You have multi-sig admins that exist there. You have um, these smart contracts that can be hacked. On, on the Bitcoin side, you have just like centralized exchanges. You know, you know, why isn't there a way to build a financial tool for Bitcoin that is unruggable? And so that's been, a, you know, a really big part of our ethos is like how to make something a product that is unruggable. So, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you can't, you, you don't want to make a product where, you know, there is a potential of the rug, right? I mean, that's where, that's where you run into some trouble, but let's talk about the overall, you know, Bitcoin market, like kind of where things are at, right? I mean, we're, well, we had a big run up yesterday and then today it kind of came back down a little bit, but we're sitting maybe 27,000. I normally don't talk too much about price, but uh, yeah. So kind of where do you think we're at? And, you know, obviously with this having coming up uh, here in May of next year, like, where do you kind of think we're going? Yeah, I think to be honest, people are um, people are probably over over bullish at this exact moment. They're like, "Oh, the happening's coming up," uh, and everyone asks, "Is the is the ha- happening?" You know. Um, also, is it having or happening? I always say it wrong. <laughs> um, I would say having, having. Okay, okay, I think that's right. I think I did a Twitter poll, and and everyone everyone roasted me. So, <laughs> um, anyhow, so like everyone thinks the having is like priced in, but I think you know, in reality, it's not, right? We're going from 900 Bitcoin per day being mined, sold on the market to 450 Bitcoin being mined every day and sold on the market. That's a huge change. At the same time, it's likely that people are over bullish right now. We're probably going to have one more, you know, downturn and then we're going to get into the the, uh, the bull market. But, um, you know, I could be wrong about that, but we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, how, how about you, Brandon? Where do you think we're at? Well, I mean, I, I kind of uh, agree with you. I think, uh, you know, people kind of, uh, I, well, actually, I take that back. I think people account for the having way too much. So my personal opinion, right, I mean, over 90% of the Bitcoin's already in circulation, right? Like less than 10% is, is uh, there to be mined. So, you know, would that really 10% be the driver of, uh, you know, the overall price change? I don't really think so. I think it's more about the human behavior. It's more about the hodlers. It's more about, you know, the 60% of Bitcoin wallets that have over one Bitcoin haven't moved in the past couple of years. I think it's more about that opposed to, you know, more about the having. And, you know, when we kind of, if you kind of take a step back, you know, I've had TXMC on who, who is a trader. So maybe he'd be interested in something that, that you guys offer as well. But, you know, if you take a step back and kind of look at, at how the Bitcoin cycle works, it's more in line with like the business cycle of things. Like people like to equate it to the having. It just kind of coincidentally lines up with these four-year cycles that also coincidentally lines up with like the presidential elections. So, I mean, it's like, it's all these kind of things that kind of, I feel like coincidentally lines up in these four-year cycles where, you know, I, I'm, I don't know, call me conspiratorial or whatnot, but I'm just connecting a few dots here, Matt. So, um, you know, I think like we're definitely going to go up next year because I think, you know, the overall macro environment isn't great, right? I mean, we have, uh, you're in Canada, I'm in, I'm in uh, Tampa, Florida. So, I mean, it's a, probably a little bit different, but all it's all kind of involved in the same, same realm where, you know, it's a lot of uncertainty. The Fed's raising rates a lot. Um, you know, the markets are crazy. People are kind of going to options products and kind of throwing their money at darts and stocks and things like that. And it's been kind of crab walking at this point. So, I think it'll be interesting to see once, you know, things kind of turn the other direction, how Bitcoin responds. And I think it'll respond well because people will start to, I guess, in times of uncertainty, they'll go to more hard assets, which usually that's been historically like real estate or gold, um, where I think now people are trying trying to look at more things like like Bitcoin. So um, I know I just kind of rambled on a little bit. So if you got something to reply to that, then, uh, then feel free. Well, well, that's a, that's actually that's a wild way. So let, we should break that down. That hypothesis that um, the election cycle has uh, like coincides with the Bitcoin bull runs. I guess what 2016, 2020, 
2024, right before the election cycle, and then right afterwards you have a bull market. Um, and and that also coincides with um, with basically the it, well, I guess it's it's a combination, right? You have the election cycle that occurs. You also have the happening that occurs. Um, you know, is it a correlation of the two that results in this occurring in every like a four year cycle? Um, well, and it's also that too. And then there's like, if you look at like the business cycle too, right? I mean, I can, I could sit here and like pull up a little bit of chart for one, but it's kind of bad audio. But anyway, it's like, you know, it, it kind of like the cycle goes up and then it goes down. It's just the, over, and, it, and it kind of occurs after every four years. But, you know, generally speaking, we've seen that business cycle go up, down, up and down. But if you kind of just take a step back and don't look at the in-between years, it looks mm -hmm. like it's straight up. And that's how we kind of felt like it was from 2010 to 2020. Whereas like, you know, there was little bumps in the road and things like that here or there. And the economy was doing better at times and then doing worse at times and, and uh, other things like that. So I think, you know, with a combination of all these things, it occurs the way it, it occurs where you see Bitcoin run up. Whereas, you know, Bitcoiners kind of think the macro doesn't matter they think that, you know, and I'm not saying this about all Bitcoiners, but I think that, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners like kind of try to <clears throat> find Bitcoin and try to escape from like the overall fiat world. Whereas like we're still in it, unfortunately, right now. Um, and or fortunately, if you think you're scooping up cheap sats, I don't really know. But either way, you know, we're still kind of in this fiat space and that fiat space involves, you know, job cycles. It involves like think markets moving up and down and involves a, a lot of these different, you know, factors that affect the Bitcoin price. And at the end of the day, you know, as much as Bitcoiners, once they get deep in and down the rabbit hole, they don't want to admit it. The ultimate signal is the price because that's where normies pay attention to. Right. So I think, you know, the business cycle aspect of it, along with the presidential election and the having like all these kind of make this cocktail that that have caused the run ups. Now, I think the having aspect of things is going to be accounted for even less as we go down the line, obviously, because it's going to be less and less. And if you've kind of taken a step back and looked at it, you know, when Bitcoin runs up, like it's not like the having occurs and the, the price immediately shoots up. It's usually like a few months de delay. And every single cycle, it's been a little bit later. So, you know, obviously Dan Held had that super cycle theory uh, where it eventually would just go up forever. I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that, but I do think that, you know, uh, eventually the Bitcoin like run up will occur months later, maybe even a year after the halving cycle opposed to, hey, it's the halving like we're get buckle up because we're about to to take off. Well, I think it's interesting, too, because like at every run up that we have, it takes that much more capital flowing into Bitcoin to make any significant moves. And so I think it's it's interesting because, you know, you're 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 I think you're touching on some on, on a really good point around the fact that, um, you know, it's Bitcoin. Bitcoin trends more and more over time towards essentially a, a stable coin, in essence. Um, and the other other fact um, that I think is interesting this cycle is with the Fed raising rates so much, um, you know, it's created a, an interesting situations for um, for homeowners um, that are affected by mortgages for um, for folks that, um, you know, if there's not as much kind of free capital available in the system, um, how is that going to affect, you know, this upcoming cycle If people have less money available 
how is that going to affect um, the Bitcoin cycle? And I think the reality is it, is it does at the end of the day. And so, if, you know, we always have to think, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're still in fiat land. Uh, we still need to deal with fiat land and, and Bitcoin still reacts much more strongly to the to macro than any changes that could possibly occur, you know, within Bitcoin itself. And so, um, yeah, that's that's an important thing to keep in mind, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it, it's all kind of like interconnected in my eyes. Right. I mean, as, as much as we like kind of want to get away from like the business cycle and those kind of things. But, you know, you, we I did meet you and your co-founders up in up in Canada and uh, in the Canadian Bitcoin conference. So I kind of want to dive into that because you guys are having some some craziness going on up there. So, um, yeah, let's talk about it. Like, what do you think Bitcoin can do for the country of Canada? I mean, we've already seen you know, obviously the truckers convoy and, and things like that occur, but, you know, taking it a step further, um, you know, what, what does, uh, you know, it seems like a lot of Bitcoiners are coming out of Canada and uh, the scene up there is popping. So uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Well, I, I think for a long time, there's been a very strong um, kind of community, you know, even places like Toronto were, were kind of a hub for early uh, Bitcoin innovation. And then a lot of the unfortunate thing is a lot of that became kind of more shitcoin innovation that occurred over time. Um, but there, there is still, you know, a strong, uh, strong group of folks, you know, working on, on, on really great stuff, you know, here in Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver. Um, we've got some interesting things that are happening. And, and you mentioned the truckers convoy, obviously um, we were hoping that Bitcoin was going to help them even more. I think, 50% of the, the Bitcoin that was given to the truckers was confiscated at the end of the day, uh, just because they went and, you know, put that on Coinbase or wherever else. And so that's really sad to see, you know, some, something that was such a, um, you know, a great movement, you know, end up being confiscated a lot of it. Um, and that just shows how far we've got to go in terms of education. And now in Canada, we're having these kind of nonsense bills come into place, um, you know, relating to, um, you know, I guess it's, I guess it's censorship. Um, they're putting these bills in place basically around news where um, they force like news organizations essentially to, you know, either pay the government and register or, um, or don't show news to Canadians. And so if you, you know, if you're Canadian and you go on Twitter and you look up Bloomberg or you look up, um, you know, some other news site, they'll say, sorry, uh, this is not available to you in Canada. And so, you know, we're, we're seeing this situation where the internet itself is literally, um, becoming, uh, you know, less and less accessible. Obviously, you can usually just, just use a VPN. So your question was like, how do how does Bitcoin fix this? Um, you know, how does how does Bitcoin fix a, a broken regime? I know there's Bitcoiners out there that believe that are accelerationists uh, that believe. So you know, what does that mean? That means um, you know, the faster that the entire empire crumbles, um, the faster we see see a you know a new dawn uh, that doesn't include these problems. Um, but the reality is that there's significant carnage if we go down that 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 rabbit hole. Um, and so, you know, I think the way that, uh, you know, Canadians use Bitcoin today is 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 the similar way that, you know, the guys at Tahini's are doing it. If you guys don't know Tahini's, they're a, a great shawarma shop up here in Canada. They have their treasury in Bitcoin and they've been, they've been doing that for a long time. And I think it's really just a way to, to say, you know, if you're if you're Canadian and you're you know, saving Canadian dollars, you're you know, you're dying. We don't know necessarily how stocks are going to do, but Bitcoin's really a way to escape. So I think the faster that you get, you know, um, you, you take your, your treasury and you get some Bitcoin in it um, and you're saving 
using that for the long term, I think the better you're going to be able to insulate yourself against, you know, the things to come. It's really either that or uh, escape to Costa Rica, like like Francis uh, Pulio from Bull Bitcoin. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems like you really don't have too much of an option these days, which is is kind of unfortunate. But, um, you know, I, I, I think, you, you know, you're nailing it on the head, right? I mean, I think eventually... You know, people are going to kind of get sick of whatever like regimes are and they're going to go where incentives lie. And I think that's not only like, you know, we're seeing it with businesses in the United States. We're seeing with business, Bitcoin businesses moving to El Salvador. We're seeing, to, you know, a lot of different things. Like, I think, you know, more and more people will start to migrate where because it's just so easy now. Right. I mean, like go back 30, 40 years, it was a little bit more difficult to get on a plane and just kind of, you know, go go around the globe. But it seems like that's kind of the. uh the the norm so to speak now so i mean it is an ever-changing and development developing environment as well as you know not only that it's you know the money situation as well um so you know before i let you go we talked a little bit about like you know the dlcs and like the smart contracts kind of aspects of things so i'm i guess as a bitcoin only guy i still get kind of confused about this so where do you see these playing a role in uh i guess everything going forward and uh yeah what the hell is a dlc man <laughs> yeah that's a great question well what it um what a dlc is in essence is really just a um contract directly on the bitcoin chain itself so it doesn't require any shit coins it doesn't require any nonsense um it's you know it's, it's on chain it's on bitcoin it doesn't require a side chain it doesn't require drive chains all the crazy drive chains folks um I, it's just a really sim- simple primitive, and and that's the way I think it should be, right? Like if you're if you have a Bitcoin that's going to become the, the you know the settlement layer of the world, then you need a, you know a financial layer that can be built on top of it that is just as secure that retains as many properties of the underlying coin itself. So what is a DLC? It's it's a smart contract for like built on Bitcoin by Bitcoiners um, that. Uh, that is super simple and secure. That's all it is. And it's just an Oracle contract, right? So um, you lock your funds in there. You can do a bet. You can do a futures contract. You can do an options contract. And the main risk that you need to take is based on the Oracle. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, like the Bitcoin blockchain itself does not have price data, right? Um, uh, If I just look at the Bitcoin blockchain, I don't know what the Bitcoin price is. Um, I don't know what the weather is tomorrow. That's what we use an Oracle for. That's called the Oracle problem, right? So we take an Oracle and we get them to attest to some data and they use that in order to create one of these contracts. Now, some of you might think, well, why don't you just do a two or three multi-sig, right? You have, you know, maybe the borrower, like say in the example of lending, you have the borrower, the lender and an arbiter. But the problem there is that the, at the end of the day, the third party, the arbiter, um, you know, they, first of all, know of the existence of your contract. And they can also, you know, collude with the counterparty uh, to screw you out of money without, you know, doing that to anyone else. Um, one, of the, one of the nice features of a DLC is when they go and create an attestation, that outcome is for everyone. So they either screw everybody over um, or they give the correct results. Um, and there's also like really nice features of, of a DLC as, as well that includes like a refund signature. So in, in the case that the Oracle completely disappears, you can still get your money back. So you can imagine, you can think of a DLC kind of like a, kind of like a lightning channel that's able to do like financial contracts. Because on chain, like the funding transaction for a DLC actually looks identical to the funding transaction for a, a dual funded lightning channel, which is really cool. 
Yeah, it does seem like some some cool different stuff, right? I mean, it does. It, it seems like it's not, you know. I mean, it's it's also built on Bitcoin, right? So I mean, it it makes the need for everything else kind of out the window, right? So, um, is Atomic Finance doing anything kind of along those lines with that? Because um, I know that you you kind of mentioned your main product is more on on the options, and maybe I might might have missed it before, but yeah. Oh yeah, so so we're using DLCs for all of this. Yeah, so so the when you go and invest in the automated strategy, you're actually investing in one of these DLC contracts, um, and 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 you invest for that at, for a month at a time, and at at the end of the month, the oracle actually attests um, to the PNL of the strategy, and so you know we we run the oracle and we work with a market maker that takes the other side. That market maker is hedging, so they're market neutral. Um, so essentially what you end up with is, the, you know, the user is able to, you know, just invest in the strategy. They're able for the whole month, they're able to see exactly where their Bitcoin is locked for the whole time. And then they can also go and verify, hey, did the Oracle actually attest to the correct results? And then I can see that. And what's cool about this system is that the Bitcoin goes back to your wallet at the end of the month, right? So instead of you going and locking it in some black box and hoping you get it back one day, that Bitcoin comes back to you every single month and you get to make the decision whether you want to invest in the in the next month. Um, and so we're doing that today uh, on chain. Um, we have plans like down the line eventually to get this uh, on top of lightning. There's like there's a whole scalability, con uh, you know, um, conversation regarding like DLCs as well. And, you know, what happens in the future for Bitcoin and how does that all scale? Um, you know, so we'll, we'll eventually be getting onto you know, uh, lightning and, you know, maybe sometime next year as well. So. That'll be awesome. Nice. Well, you get you you mentioned it already, like a little bit about lightning next year. But what else is ahead of uh, for Atomic Finance? Can you kind of give us a, a little bit of a peek into the future, like what you guys are planning and cooking up? Yeah, absolutely. So we've got our first passive strategy out there right now, cover calls. But um, actually, in the next like couple of weeks, very very soon, we're we're launching manual options as well. So that means like uh, you don't. Uh, uh, you can uh, invest in other things than just our strategy. You can do your own options as well, long calls, long puts. Um, so we're really excited to get that out. Obviously, you know, if you're um, if you're a novice, you know, do your research, understand what you're getting into. Um, you know, these things aren't for the, the fate of heart. And so uh, make sure you do your research first. Um, and then uh, we're planning to launch some additional strategies too. Um, really, our, our goal long term for this is, is to build, a, you know, really a platform for sound finance and to grow um, the ecosystem around DLCs and for financial contracts to be built on Bitcoin. We're not the only ones doing this. Atomic Finance is doing it. 1011 Finance is doing it. Lava is doing it. 1011 is doing futures. Lava is doing Bitcoin backed loans. And so you're starting to see this ecosystem emerge, um, just like we had, like, you know, DeFi and Ethereum. Um, we're starting to see that on Bitcoin, but we're seeing it without all the shit coins. We're seeing it without all the nonsense, without all the tokens. We're just seeing basic, um, you know, financial primitives, you know, built for Bitcoiners. And so that's really our goal long term is just to expand upon that offering um, and allow folks to be able to do more, you know, more things with their Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah, and it seems like you know, yeah, basically be able to to live in this fiat world with with Bitcoin and that, instead of having to sell it, um, and kind of go through those capital gains and and all those other kind of taxes and headaches that you might need to deal with. Um, but you know, you mentioned a little bit about like some of these other companies building, right? I mean, so for you guys, 
you know, your, your phone app, which seems like it's very uh, useful, kind of like interesting in that aspect of things. But are you guys available in, in any country and every country? Like where where can uh, people kind of find Atomic Finance and go from there? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we would love to like, it's like, you know, it's such a weird thing. Um, we are all, we live in different, you know, we're humans. We live in all these different countries. Um, and yet like for us, like we have to, just based on certain you know laws and regulations, we have to restrict you know like sanctioned countries, for example, like you know folks in Russia can't use our our product, which is stupid. It's it's not custodial, but that's you know those are the laws that we have to abide by. My belief is we're all you know humans and we're citizens of Earth, and why can't you know people access any type of financial tool? And um, you know may, maybe you know maybe one day that will be the case. So, but we're we're available in in, in most countries around the world as a you know non custodial tool. Um, you know, if you go to atomic.finance, you can download the app for test flight on iOS and we're going to be on the app store, uh, very, very soon. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think long-term it's all about building tools that can be, you know, used by humans anywhere. There's lots, you know, it's, there's all these weird, weird things that exist in, in finance. Like if you're like, say, if you're a Chinese person, you can't buy us stocks. If you're a U.S. person, you can't buy Chinese stocks. Why is that? You know, that, that's just a bizarre thing. Um, and so, you know, my hope for DLCs long term is that a DLC can really kind of represent any type of um, any type of financial contract. And so I, I hope that it will that that we can over time move towards a more open and open world where, you know, where the, the finances of your average person and the, the types of instruments that they can get access to, uh, you know, become more and more more fluid. Um, so, yeah. You know, here's here's to uh, here's to building bu building uh, a better sound finance for sound money future, uh, Brandon. You know. <laughs> yeah, amen, man. I mean, we we that's what we're all trying to do here, right? But there is a lot of roadblocks and hurdles. So, I mean, just like before I let you go, I want to ask just a little bit about that, right? Because it seems like there's difficult to, uh, in a sense, you know, go through all those different jurisdictions, right? You're in Canada, like you know, I guess what and you know, you mentioned Francis and Bull Bitcoin. Right. I mean, they operate in Canada right now. They're the only ones that I know of that you can kind of go to someplace with cash and buy not uh, non KYC Bitcoin at like the post office. You know, they set set that up, that whole thing. So obviously, kudos to them. But, you know, talk about like a little bit of the difficulties, you know, in these different jurisdictions. Like, have you guys tried, you know, obviously just in Canada, but have you tried the United States and other areas like that as well? Yeah, so our, our app is available um, like worldwide, except for, um, you know, uh, a very specific, you know, countries under the sanctions list. Unfortunately, we have to block those. Um, and so, uh, you know, we we've done you know, kind of the legal legal work to make sure that, you know, we're compliant with, say, like U.S. law or um, Canadian law. And so there's there's lots of, um, you know, kind of things in place that, you know, we have to we have to abide by in order to uh, be able to offer you know products like this. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting, right? Like you, you go and typically like financial tools are usually, you know, in, in one specific jurisdiction, you build it for Canada or for the United States. Um, but really when you're thinking of like, you know, sound finance or DeFi, you know, really these are tools that should be available throughout the world and anyone should be able to get access to. And Bitcoin is worldwide, you know, money for everyone. And so um, I think that's really our goal, you know, uh, for the long term to be able to get to. Obviously, we're not, you know, taking the sanctioned countries off our off our list right now. They're still blocked. Um, but maybe, you know, maybe maybe one day humanity will be able to 
um, you know, freely transact to anyone in the world without, without restrictions. I, I think that would be the, the goal long-term. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that, dude. Just free, free sound money and everything like that. It would, it would, the world would be a lot better of a place, right? Fix the money, fix the world. That's what we always say. So, um, well, actually, I think, I think there's an even bigger one, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, fix the money, leave the world, which means like if we fix the money here, we'll be able to improve our technology enough to actually, uh, you know, eventually, you know, explore the galaxy. So <laughs> I thought that was a cool one. Yeah, that is cool. Maybe you've been listening to too much Elon, bro. I mean, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I, I kind of like it here on Earth right now. I don't I The thought of space kind of freaks me out. Honestly, the thought of like the deeper the ocean, that freaks me out maybe a little bit more about than space because I feel like we know... I don't know. We don't know enough about the ocean as, and it's right there in front of us. But anyway, that's another rabbit hole we could drop down for probably hours on end. But Matt, you've been very generous with your time. So why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and uh, yeah, where else, where they can find atomic finance and figure out everything out about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can, we're available, um, as I mentioned on iOS on test flight, if you go to atomic.finance, you can check it out. We're also on Twitter at atomic finance too. Um, what we recommend to folks is, um, you know, like this is a new thing, right? DLCs are a new thing. Go ahead, try it out with a small amount of funds, uh, 500K stats, 1 million stats. Uh, try out the product, get comfortable with it. We Don't put like your whole stack into something like this, right? Not, keep 90% of your Bitcoin in cold storage, uh, but, you know, play around with that one or five or 10%. Um, and, and, you know, try out, try out some new, uh, you know, uh, financial products for Bitcoin. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think you'll like what we've done with the UI UX in terms of, you know, DLC sounds like this really scary concept, but when you see that it's really just, you know, you click one button on a mobile app, it, it becomes, uh, you know, a, a lot easier to get access to. So we're really excited about that. Yeah, for sure. And I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. All right, Matt. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, Brandon.